0: And uh, we'll, we'll go over it later.
1: Okay, thanks.
0: Yep. All right, welcome everybody. Like I said, we've got uh, Sangha Shuffle after this, so stick around if you can. Um, the first summer that I spent on Mount Baldy, uh, I spent I don't know how long, seemed like a long time, uh, day after day, turning the compost. That was the job they gave me. And this was no regular compost job. Uh, It was uh, a pit, I guess, six or eight feet by about 10 feet. And I don't know, eight feet deep, more, don't know how deep that thing went. where all rotting vegetables and soup and rice and everything else was dumped. And we had a lot of that, actually, because we did Takahatsu down in L.A. and got often got a lot of rotten food that had to go straight in. Anyway, the pit was bisected. And um, though I couldn't really tell the difference between the two halves, apparently one of them was newer stuff and another, another one was older stuff. And my job uh, that summer was to climb into the pit with waders on and shovel the new stuff over to the old stuff. Everybody said the compost isn't really working, but we did it anyway. Um, (laughs) What was the name of that book? Um... The Phantom Tollbooth reminds me of a scene in there, if anybody's read that. Anyhow, it was hot, and uh, the stench was awful, and it was slimy, and there were lots of flies. And I did it anyway, uh, of course. Welcome to monastic life. So I went from the calm, clean Uh, fastidiously clean Zendo um, out to my work there, and then back to the Zendo day after day. And turns out this was actually a sneak preview of worse jobs to come. Uh, We had a composting toilet system that that we tried to get to work for years. We just bought the wrong one, really, and it didn't work, and that led to a lot of shoveling shit. Um, But anyway, this was all a worthwhile part of Zen training for me. And later I learned that Buddhism has a has a, a long history of contemplating and getting close to the disgusting. Uh, the Buddha's robe, the original robe, Kesa. This Ruksu is a is a kind of a little imitation of it patched together, but the original robe was uh, supposed to have been funeral shrouds and pieces of cloth that are chewed by rats, defiled by menstrual blood. That was the idea back in the day. Um, And then so sort of the worst cloth you can find. And then um, all the reason it's saffron is they would boil it in 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 stuff to to sanitize it but the the famous mahasati patana sutta uh, the application of present moment awareness uh, in that sutra the buddha starts with noticing the breath present awareness but the fourth um, practice is careful consideration of repulsive bodily features. I won't go through those right now. But uh, uh, because I prefer to to concentrate on six through 14, which are cremation ground contemplations. Um, These are ones that I thought we might have a chance to do one day in our new building. Here's the first one. This is the sixth practice. Now imagine that you were to see in a cremation ground a corpse that has been discarded for several days and become swollen, discolored, and festering. Making your body the focal point reflect, this body of mine is of the same nature as that one. It will become just like that one. It too is not free from death. And then on from there. Um, to be sure, the contemplation of death held a special place for the Buddha. Uh, you remember his, the Buddha's question to his charioteer after he sees a dead person for the first time is, will this happen to me? And the charioteer says, yes, sire, it will. When, I, when Myoshin read that I was giving this talk, was that just yesterday that it went out? Maybe, maybe yesterday, yeah. Uh, she sent me a section on disgust that she ran across while perusing ancient texts for her studies, which is what she does these days. And uh, that's from the great Yogacara practitioner, Vasubandhu, uh, who, was talking about a Yogacara, uh, what a Yogacara is. Yogacara is one of the, the great schools of Mahayana Buddhism. But here, what is a Yogacara? And it meant a lot of different things. But one of those things was one who contemplates the, the disgusting. A person does this by imagining the putrefaction and dropping off of the flesh off the bone And by seeing yourself as a skeleton and then by seeing the whole town and the whole region and eventually the whole world filled with skeletons reminds me of Ikkyu's uh, uh, famous book, uh, a verse on skeletons. And the point of this, these death meditations, I think, is to get over your aversion to death, not just your thinking about it, but your visceral um, aversion to death by entering into it fully to stop our persistent and I think often unconscious and really wily denial of it. We are animals. We are not gods we will die and that will be disgusting. You too, sire, you too. A couple of hundred years after the Buddha died, there was a a new movement um, that took over. I mean, it didn't take over all of Buddhism, but that really uh, became the hot new thing, the Mahayana, a reform movement that was among other things, an attempt, I think, to counter what had been the become a kind of heightened purity among the monks. Uh, remember, last year we read the Vimalakirti Sutra in our intensive practice period, and that was composed, of, you know, long after the Buddha's time, a couple hundred years at least, three, four hundred years probably. And in there, the Buddha is saying how wonderful the Buddha lands are. And that old school monk, uh, who's often the foil in these things, Shariputra, asks, why is it that our land is so crummy uh, and impure? And the Buddha says, because you're not using the right eyes. uh, You're not using the right mind. When your mind is pure, then the world is pure, he says. And this is an important point, I think, that the distinction between pure and impure is made by you. Then there's that famous story in the Vimalakirti Sutra that I love so much, uh, where the the, the goddess comes down and schools those stuck in their ways old monks. You know, women in those days were already kind of seen as impure. And what she does is she comes down and she, she showers them with flowers, um, which they have decided a long time ago to, to see, or, or, or well, the rules say is an adornment and thus should not be worn by monks. And the flowers stick to the monks and uh, they are, the monks, That they, they are, well, disgusted. They're appalled. Um, <clears throat> they're defiled by these flowers, and they try to get them off. <clears throat> and the goddess says, you know, they're only flowers. You should do more zazen. If we've made something or someone bad in certain circumstances, or maybe in certain circumstances unhelpful, um, I think we have a habit of making them with our mind, something impure, uh, something bad through and through. I sometimes say of that story that bad has a way of sort of metastasizing, taking over, so that before you know it, you think flowers themselves are impure. <clears throat> and Buddhism asks us to notice this impulse and not fall for it. Um, so then, fast forward a few hundred years after *Vimalakirti* was written and the shadowy figure of Bodhidharma appears sailing from India to China where he founded Chan or Zen. Uh, whether he was an actual person or not, we don't know, but Certainly he represented the, the, the original spirit of Zen. I love that about him. Uh, he was a rough and tumble guy, hairy. You know, everybody else was, you, he's always pictured with a bunch of hair, <clears throat> probably stinky. And Buddhism at the time was, was well-established and institutionalized and you could maybe even say sterilized Uh, Bodhidharma meets with the cultured Emperor Wu who asks him three questions in the middle of those questions is what when he's doubting Bodhidharma at this point he says what is the holy first holy principle of Buddhism and Bodhidharma says vast emptiness and nothing holy he's known for that phrase nothing holy holy you see, in my view, is, among other things, pure. And Zen tends to work against this version or this vision of purity, uh, purity laws, having a fixed idea of the pure, of the holy. So this last year, we, in the intensive practice period, we started Vimalakirti, this time, Bodhidharma. So a couple of... uh, people who, who both were iconoclasts in their own way or that, that <clears throat> challenged our way of seeing things. And Zen throughout, you know, whenever you, I mean, when you have something as pure as the Buddha, for instance, you ask, what is the Buddha? And you get a common answer like three pounds of flax, or you get an answer like Yunman's, um, what is Buddha, a piece of shit, Well, I won't go into the details of that, but either a piece of shit or a shit stick. It's not clear by the translation. They used to so that which is to say toilet paper. And then of course Rinzai with killing the Buddha. Don't get stuck in your idea of a pure Buddha is one thing that that's saying I think. And it recognizes that there is this unhelpful tendency that I think runs deep in our species and that I think we've developed over time, thanks to our imagination, the tendency to sort out the pure and the impure, the unalloyed good and the unalloyed bad, and to keep them separate and Thanks to this practice, I think I notice it more than I used to. Um, And sometimes I'm better at doing something about that. Uh, In his book, Sapiens, uh, the historian Yuval Harari, interesting character he is, um, also a Vipassana meditator, has a section on purity and pollution. And he says, if you want to keep any group isolated and below you on the social pyramid, so Jews or blacks or untouchables or gays or women, convince yourself that the other um, is unclean, uh, polluted. So the Nazis, uh, when describing the Jews, used all kinds of metaphors and imagery like rats and maggots. And in America, white supremacists call blacks, of course, among other things, dirty and polluted. And you can't drink from the same water fountain or you'll be contaminated uh, or swim in the same pool. That's why that moment on TV that maybe you've seen that just chokes me up every time. of Mr. Rogers, uh, when he offers the black, I think, policeman who comes by um, a foot bath in a wading pool. And, uh, and then Mr. Rogers puts his own feet in there as well. And they share that pool. That's at a time when, you know, pools are segregated. And that's a symbolic, visceral rebuke of racism. uh, I think that gets to a kind of one of its underpinnings, which is this purity idea. And that leads me to this New York Times article, a New York Times Magazine article that I read. I finished early this week, I had pinned it, I had bookmarked it for quite a while. And then I read it and I just got so happy. It's called How Disgust Explains Everything. And the author, <clears throat> Molly Young, uh, centers it this article on the kind of the, well, I, I mean, one of the, uh, the modern, the person who's done more mo- uh, work on this than anybody else, actually. I guess I can say that, uh, trailblazer, Paul uh, Rosen, and he is the psychologist, as I said, that put discussed studies on the map. And in the early eighties, he noticed that of the six basic emotions, uh, anger, surprise, fear, enjoyment, sadness, and disgust, it was this last one that had hardly been studied. So she, and this is how um, Molly Young, this is what she says. Disgust is a bodily experience that creeps into every corner of our social lives a piece of evolutionary hardware designed to protect our stomachs that expanded into a system for protecting our souls." She's a really good writer. Um, What she's saying is that aversion to disgusting things has, uh, for us humans, has had mission creep. That's the way I think of it for a long time uh and now it affects us in more ways than we tend to think that it does. And it would be well for us to notice that. And as Buddhists, I think we are well placed to do that. Um, one important feature of disgust is that as far as scientists can tell, it only happens in humans. Uh, the theory is that, It's so well developed in us because we eat a whole bunch of different things. I mean, you know, most species eat a few number of things. We eat all kinds of things. So The Omnivore's Dilemma, you know that book by um, Michael Pollan, he took that from Paul Rosen. Um, Because the the dilemma, of an omnivore for Rosen is how to avoid killing yourself uh, by eating the wrong thing when you're eating so many different things. And the answer is disgust. So it has those evolutionary beginnings. But he noticed, and others have too, of course, that it's not just food that disgusts us, it's other things too, blood, incest, cannibalism, Uh, to name a couple. And one thing that Rosen thinks purity laws have, uh, well, one thing that seems obvious is that purity laws have developed to keep us from animal-like behavior. We're humans after all. And Rosen has a theory called the animal reminder theory that fascinates me. This is quoting from the article. It posits that disgust is a way to strenuously ignore the mountain of evidence that we are, in fact, mammals that eat, excrete, bleed, rut and die like every other mammal. And one reason for this, uh, Rosen says, is that, and here I'm quoting again, disgust operates as a foreshadowing of our own death every encounter with moldy meat is a sneak preview of the fact that we will at some point become moldy meat ourselves. <laughs> uh, so those death meditations that I talked about, that I read a little bit of, um, you can see those as a way to get to get over this, this uh, what does he call it, animal, uh, or to remind ourselves, actually, that we are animals, um, that we too will die, and to really get close to it, uh, to remember that we are in fact a meat suit, and that uh, that we're subject to all the things that animals are. We're not that special. So disgust, purity, impurity has developed in interesting ways, um, with humans because we can think and imagine in ways that other animals can't. So this disgust function has this kind of mission creep that I, that I mentioned. Uh, and Rosen's groundbreaking breaking, uh, uh, paper in 1986 was called Operation of Sympathetic Magic in Disgust and Other Domains. So he did a lot of research into what disgusts people Uh, It was, it was, I'm not going to read much of it, but it was fun. Uh, You know, for instance, he would uh, unwrap a a brand new uh, thing of disposable cups, put uh, two two cups of juice in there, and in one, he would tell the person, this is a 100% sterilized cockroach that I'm going to drop into this one, and then a plastic pellet into the other one, and then You take them out and then you get to choose which one to drink. And of course, the choice is obvious, um, even if that one was sterilized. And even if that juice is frozen for a year and they come back and ask the person which one they you know, if they'd like to drink the the, uh, cockroach one, they say, of course, no, thank you. Um, So disgust acts like sympathetic magic. Uh, term which psychologists use for magical belief in that that magical belief systems in traditional cultures, and one of the laws of these systems is contagion. So once in contact, always in contact. Once something soiled, always soiled. We think that, whether it's true or not. And you think about those monks in the Vimalakirti story that were afraid of being contaminated by those flowers. And I think this principle acts itself out in our lives regularly. Um, Once somebody has been sullied by scandal or by social faux pas or a ton of other things, that, that tends to stick in a way. And Zen works against this magical thinking. So it says try to see things as they are. Don't imagine that you're not an animal. Don't make the Buddha or your path uh, the path of purity. Um, Or keep this, you know, we do have a certain, we have we wear, we're going to have a ceremony in march uh where and at ceremonies we wear white socks and i was told that's for purity um, so that's fine um, uh, th- to act that out i think as long as we can see through it um, and not fixate that We do get to to uh, I look forward to to practicing together with other human bodies. Um, And one of the great things about this practice is that it is done with other people um, and that we get to work together to get over um, sitting together, you know, next to somebody who's just farted or um, uh, who is making a awful noise, whistling noise with their nose, um, all of those bodily functions that we get to work with um, in our practice. The last part of this article that I, if you're interested, do read it, uh, is devoted to politics, and Young says that One of Rosen's most well-known students is this psychologist, um, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Righteous Mind, Why Good People are Divided by Religion and Politics, which is a book that really had an effect on me. Um, And led, among other things, to me kind of getting to know the evangelical minister across the way here. But Haidt started his career in Discussed Studies. Uh, with Rosen. And it turns out, one little interesting point is that uh, liberals are consistently more open to disgust and conservatives are far more apt to be disgusted. Um, For conservatives, purity is more often one of the purity-impurity is more often one of the foundations of their morality. Made me think, maybe uh, we, we, my Hayanists, are kind of liberal by nature, um, which tracks somewhat, I think, since they are reacting against this kind of, what they saw as a more conservative uh, tradition with its purity. But I think we have to go deeper than that to be sure. Um, because I think purity laws exist for all kinds of people, all groups of people. Um, and I remember, you know, I talking in The Righteous Mind about how, you know, plenty of liberals have purity laws around food, like organics and, and veganism and things like that. Um, one of the handful of reasons that I am cautious about having the Zen Center engage in the political sphere or to join in with liberal causes as and that would be our team without question, I think, is that political teams are very sticky. And I think they tend to catch us and explicitly or implicitly need loyalty and purity in a certain way. Zen says, uh, cautions us not to believe in our own group's holiness, including the Zen path, the Zen group. And one of the reasons that I was drawn to Zen in the beginning was that, um, that it says that right in the tradition Just as a practitioner, I encourage you to to notice your own purity laws. Notice your own disgust impulse. Uh, Whether it's with a thing or a person or a group of people, be curious about it. Young really is a good writer and here's another nice line from her piece. If the initial function of disgust was like a piece of caution tape plastered over our mouths, the tape has over time wound itself around other holes to regulate sexual activity and our minds to regulate moral activity. We humans, I think, live in a rich time. Uh, We live in a time that's in an interconnected world with a lot of mixing uh, where I think a lot of old ideas of purity have had to fall. Uh, racial purity, country purity, cultural purity. And um, they're, they're har- harder to hold on to th- th- thankfully. And yet it's a hard habit to shake. We see that we see racism is not done yet. And it seems to me that we live um, in, in another way in an increasingly sterilized world where we can in some way become purer and purer, further and further from, uh, from rotting flesh, further and further from other people, we can stay at home, uh, we can order everything we want. Uh, right to our door and not go out and mix with others. We can sort each other and decide where we're going to live. And our associations, I think, can be purer and purer too with people that, you know, in our bubbles that the Facebook and YouTube algorithm helps us uh, establish and keep. Yeah, so these, the, 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 all of that, I think, helps keep us pure as well in a different way. So there's a lot going on, I think. But uh, disgust and contamination and impurity, those, those strong and I think elemental urges in humans, um, they can have big effects, and they have a tendency of skewing our view of ourselves and of others. And I think Buddhism in general and Zen in particular has a way of kind of investigating that disgust mechanism and impurity and purity and the tendencies around those things. So that's so why I thought it'd be fun to give this talk. And you know, on Mount Baldy, when I, um, I, learned among other things to be unfussy and relatively down to earth, I think, and not too pure. Um, I learned to eat what I was served. And to do slimy and disgusting jobs. And also to cozy up to death. And to do my best not to categorize people or situations in a simple black and white way. Well, unfortunately, you probably haven't heard the last of discussed. Um, I, I, I really did enjoy uh, reading this article, and um, uh, it, it spoke to me. I hope it stirred something in you, too. Okay. i am try to get the, right, the buttons right here. Hold on. Oh my gosh! There, remove my spotlight. Um. Have any thoughts about that? Were you disgusted by the talk?
2: Was there? I'd like to share something if that's okay. Please. I think some of these studies um, that you talked about also suggest that your level of disgust is not a conscious process. It's not, it's not one of choice. Absolutely. And, and so if that correl- if your level of disgust correlates with your political preference, if you combine those two things, it means that people's political preference is really not one of free will. It's just how, how you're wired. And I think that's a really interesting thought if you, you know, if you engage with people of a different political uh, background to just realize that it's not really their free will that led them there, nor is it yours. So
0: that is actually something I think that Linda, you've read that book on uh, that, uh, the, the, the righteous mind. I think that's one of the conclusions that coming to is that that, um, you know, when they yeah, that this kind of openness to to experience, for instance, and uh, purity and may be less a matter of choice than we think. Interesting. Other um, stories? Coaching. Anybody have any stories of, uh, any grizzly stories they want to tell? Or...
1: Joan? Yeah, um, I wanted to share, maybe you could help me understand what happened. Yesterday, I I went down to San Diego for the, uh, little, little Italy, they have a farmer's market, and they block off a whole bunch of, section of this town, and um, there were thousands of people there, and um, As far as your talk went, I'm trying to figure out why I reacted like this. It's just, it was just an army of sweaty bodies and people not caring about anybody else. And, you know, armpit to armpit, it was very, very crowded. And um, they'd never even thought they were rotting flesh. But uh, the way I reacted was, um, I... I felt kind of disoriented and I was actually even dysfunctional in being in that environment. So did I, were they really, they were acting like they didn't care about anything. So was I judging them? Was I thinking of them as animals or <laughs> <laughs> was I thinking of them with disgust or, I mean, I couldn't help myself, but it it was just not a very friendly environment. So yeah.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I just love that you asked the question. And um, I think that, I, I think this disgust, when we feel this disgust, it's something to be looked at, at least. Um, and I think there is a difference between, for instance, I think there there are opportunities when we feel disgust to, to see whether some something, whether, for instance, there really is harm here. So uh, or not. Um, and or whether th- this is kind of a knee jerk, you know, reaction to something. And and that those knee jerk reactions can lead to judgment, I think. Judgment of all these other people who are just so, you know, disgusting or what have you. Um, in a way that doesn't have to happen. Now, what may, what it makes me think of also is COVID, which I did not put into my talk, but which is uh, an actual bug, right? Uh, an actual contagion uh, or or contaminant. And um, but do you know how do we how do we sort of work with contaminants like that? As well. I mean, I could imagine going to a thing like that and thinking, oh, all these people unmasked. You know, that's a dangerous situation. And maybe it is actually a dangerous situation in that case. We can, we can, um, so there is that. But then, how is it possible for us to, for instance, mask up without having a, you know, without hating the the bug of the COVID bug. I think about that with cancer too. I was talking to Genko about the other, the other day. Is it possible to have this contaminant within our body without hating that contaminant? It's not that we have to love it, but it's happening. And just how we work how we work in different ways with purity and impurity it's not to say that we that there isn't pure and impure i mean i think in some way there there is but at the same time at the exactly the same time there isn't and uh to be able to see both of those things at the same time i think is important it changes the changes our knee-jerk reaction it's kind of a long answer
1: That's a great point, because, you know, here I am with my mask on, and hardly anyone wore a mask. I went and bought my food, and when I sat down to eat it, of course, I had to take the mask off, and all these people are going past me. So, of course, I did feel a little bit uh, threatened in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for raising that, Joan. It's really interesting, I think, uh, good food for practice here. Diane? Diane? Just un, 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 unmute yourself and go for
3: it. Uh, Koshin, yeah. Um, I was raised in a small, small logging town in Southwest Washington. Mm. And lately, uh, the children there, the students have been protesting wearing masks. And I've been following this a little bit in the local paper. And they recently had a congressperson come there and was talking to the students and saying, saying such things as, you know, we aren't going to be like those mask wearing liberals, are we? And all the students yelling, no. (laughs) So it's, you know, they're being taught from a very young age to dislike liberals, just as 40% of the country is being taught, you know, with talk radio every day. I just wonder, um, I often think about these people hating me and how to feel towards them. It's hard to feel sympathy or love for people who are actively being trained to hate you. Do you have any comments or uh, wisdom in that regard? Thank you. I
0: don't know, I hope so. Um, One thing, I I feel that 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 polarization And it really is a polarization between groups, and in this case, you know, the the um, the conservatives, for instance, that are listening to this stuff on talk radio and other places. I find that approaching one person is different from approaching a whole group. And I think the I think there is a bias that we have to toward seeing a when we see one person that is that we know is identified with a group to see the group rather than to see the person. And I think that in in a certain way, I think we ourselves have to check ourselves when we uh, about our own sort of contamination feeling. Um that's one thing I think it's it's uh, I mean I, I sometimes tell the story of this, you know, the, we had this we have a meditation supply business and we we offered, uh, you know, for to we needed a new employee and the new employee came and then, we hired this wonderful woman, and then anyway, after a few days, it turns out she's an evangelical Christian, and do, I, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> never going to work. This is just never going to work. Um, she's got to handle all these Buddhas. She's, um, you know, she's bound to be close-minded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I had that, that that thought. Sorry to say. <laughs> I, I told Lidun, you know, you know, and Lidun, who's Norwegian, who doesn't know anything about the, you know, know any better, she said, well, doesn't look that way to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, it was she was fantastic.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But I had this prejudice against her based on her group. And uh, so it's not that anyway, so. That's a long-winded way to, to say something about yeah. individual versus the group, yeah. and uh, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next time, Linda. Uh,
1: there was a YouTube conversation recently between Jonathan Haidt and Yuval Noah Harari. Um, so, if you wanted to Google that and watch it, it was pretty interesting. It was really a, a lot about democracy and. Hmm. what our chances are to be able to ma- maintain it
0: wow that sounds really interesting that would that's the nexus of if we can just get this uh resin in there then we would have bullseye for this talk Burnett, are you looking for the mute button
2: yeah hi I just this will
0: be the, will be the last one here because we we're about about to move on
2: I just wanted to comment back on. Is it Dion who just spoke? Dion, is that how you pronounce your Dion. name? Dion. Oh, I'm,
0: sorry. I'm okay. assuming that's right. Is that right, Dion? Yeah.
2: Okay, Dion. I just wanted to say, you know, um, maybe we maybe we also can't don't need to worry so much about the young people. Um, I was a diehard young Republican through, you know, <laughs> you know, into college, baby. So you can turn things around. I'm not now. So, um, you know. You know, I don't know. I I think young people we get we get pers- persuaded and swayed, and and then we 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 can change. So I hope those folks hearing those messages, if they're youth, will you know grow up, learn some more stuff, and and hopefully we can all work together and not be so polarized. So.
0: <laughs> all right. Thanks for that hopeful message to end <laughs> on. Um, thanks, folks, and. Um, I should maybe mention to those who came just a little bit late. On these first Sundays, we have we start the Dharma talk early, uh, for because. Um,